You're listening to the Center for Auto Safety podcast with Executive Director Michael Brooks, Chief Engineer Fred Perkins, and hosted by Anthony Simino. For over 50 years, the Center for Auto Safety has been working to make cars safer. Find out more at autosafety.org. Regular listeners, you hear me lament all the time about my son and his idea of, I want to get a motorcycle. It (laughs) causes his poor mother to have heart palpitations. Um, She's left the state we live in because she's so traumatized. Uh, So he's our guest this week for a bit. And so, uh, Ade, please tell people Mm -hmm. why you, as a 17-year-old living in Manhattan, want Mm -hmm. a motorcycle. Okay. Uh, first of all, I think it's most important to, to get this first point out of the way. It's cool. (laughs) Motorcycles are cool. That's a universal fact. I think that's objective, uh, even if they're not safe. Uh, well, let me just Mm -hmm. ask you if they're cool when they're vertical or if they're cool when they're horizontal. (laughs) Yes. I think both if you land correctly. Oh, (laughs) <laughs> um but they're, they're clearly cool let's just get that out of the way uh, they're, they're clearly cool i mean you've seen the guys riding them most part cool dudes and for the record yeah. i had one when i was 15 and and i who's the hell's that actor the fonda peter fonda i thought i was peter fonda and I, you know I, it, that definitely has a cool factor as i'm plodding around back roads with no exhaust pipes at all <laughs> right out of the manifold uh-huh. You're not yeah. helping here, okay? Neither of you. Are. Okay, continue about your reasons for wanting a motorcycle besides to kill your mother. Uh, you brought up as a kid that lives in Manhattan. Now, I think it's pretty obvious that it's a difficult thing to park in Manhattan. Uh, and <laughs> I doubt I'm going to have a private space as a 17-year-old kid. Uh, so, I mean... Having a nice small vehicle to put between other cars, I think that's that's convenient. Uh, for one, right, <laughs> yeah, but got, I don't want to be cool here all the time. And you know? It's cool and convenient. And your point about the subway, I as a city kid, I don't want to be in the city almost ever. Um, I spend way too much time here. I think you know most of anybody on this call that I enjoy. You know, the hiking and doing things outside of here. So, you know, a vehicle in general to not be here. So uh, cool, convenient and the country. Okay, the country. You're man after my own heart on that one. Although I get there with a car. (laughs) (laughs) I live there. Uh, It's cheaper. From what I've seen, Uh, you know, (laughs) No, I, I think it, it probably is if you're not factoring in, you know, increased hospital expenses yeah, and possibly, you know, it's also uh, not just cheaper, but it's probably, you know, better for the environment. It's, you know, the more, more, more fuel efficient than vehicles. What are you All right. doing? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That as well. Um, uh, yeah. Um, here's another Another point. You see this on my chair? This is yeah. a, a leather jacket that I never get to wear while riding a motorcycle, and I think oh. that's a crime. 
that's that's, that's cool. Front. I mean, that's back in the cool area, but I can I could see yeah. that. You know? Yeah. I mean, you know what? Um, they wear leathers riding motorcycles, right? Because you know, <laughs> road rash. When, when you fall yeah. off and you are sliding yeah. on that. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this isn't, this isn't, uh, <laughs> like there are actual jackets made for protecting you in that, uh, department. This is not rated for that, but, sure. uh, I still want to wear it on a motorcycle. Yeah. Those okay. protective jackets are going to add a thousand dollars to your motorcycle cost, by the way. So true. Just true. be ready for that. Finally, a voice of reason. Okay. Okay. Right. Is there any other reasons you want a motorcycle? Because I ask, wh where do you put your girlfriend on your motorcycle? Like, do, wouldn't you rather have a back seat? They're shaking their heads at me, telling I'm doing this wrong. No, it's wrong. Well, I mean, it, that scares me to death every time I see someone riding on the back of a motorcycle. But you know, that's I, I suppose that's uh, the only way for some folks to get around. I mean, you see it certainly in. in more crowded and uh other countries more Third than you do in America. countries but, you know i see it a lot here you know i've seen plenty of people riding riding uh what do you call that piggyback i don't even know the terminology friend you yeah well they've got passenger seats sort of but yeah it's, well of course you get close contact with whomever is riding in the back so that that's true that's true particularly around the age of 17 that's an important consideration mm-hmm <laughs> All right. Well, okay. He's blushing. All right. Yeah. So, All right. I hit so him with that one. Here's here's kind of the here's here's where motorcycles aren't that cool and convenient when um, finally when they crash, right? And and mm -hmm. you know, I I've been trying to figure out. It's, it's hard to figure out and pin down the data on at fault. You know, whether motorcyclists are at fault, other drivers are at fault. That seems to be somewhere around fifty fifty or in that range, but. The risk when um, you're on a motorcycle seems to be a lot more higher. So these are 2020 numbers. So in 2020, uh, fatalities on motorcycles, there was uh, 31.64 for every 100 million miles traveled. For cars, that number is only 1.34. So over 30 times is dangerous. About 24 times mm -hmm. more likely to die on a motorcycle per unit of distance traveled in, in America in 2020. Now, injuries aren't much better. Um, there is, it's about 468 injuries per 100 million miles traveled and about 79 per 100 million miles traveled in vehicles. So you're about six times more likely to be injured. Um, the, when, you know, one of the things that NHTSA's, NHTSA was stated was that you're about um if you're in a vehicle i think it's about 20 percent of crashes result in an injury or death but if you're on a motorcycle that happens about 80 percent of the time mm. so you know the numbers aren't looking good here for you True. um and then you know there are some things that mitigate those numbers um i think they go down fairly significantly these are the things your dads don't want to hear if you wear a helmet if mm -hmm. 
you aren't drunk or on any other drugs or distracted, that type of thing. Uh, so uh, that's a non-negotiable. And if you actually have a license, your 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 um death and injury rate appears to go down. Mm. Um, but you still have a significant risk of um much higher than vehicles, at least, of experiencing a, a death or injury on a motorcycle. Um and even if you're sober, helmeted, licensed, and all those things, and very paranoid, which I understand is important if you're on a motorcycle and you're having to watch the um, some of our fellow fellow humans drive very poorly um, these days. So combine that with the fact that motorcycles are inherently less stable than cars. You know, mm-hmm. you lose. You know, if you lose balance in a car, you might. You know personally nothing's going to happen to you but if you lose your balance on a motorcycle you're going to spill and that's you know they're Mm. they're just not as stable as a car and that's part of this problem um also you're you're you know in cars cars are built to keep you inside the vehicle within the structure there are a lot of protective aspects about that in addition to airbags and other things you don't have any of those benefits on a motorcycle um although there are foot to head to foot airbags that have been that appear to be sold to some motorcyclists which effectively sense sense a crash pulse and then some i've seen are full body airbags Mm -hmm. some are just vests depending on what you buy and how much you're willing to spend it looks like you could cover yourself in a bubble for a (laughs) crash so that might be something your dad wants to invest in as well i'm not investing in any of this are you out of your goddamn (laughs) minds no (laughs) <laughs> no, I don't. I don't care about these airbags. All right, hey, let me let me try to personalize this. Okay, oh, sure. Mm-hmm. Um, number one, I have a friend who uh, bought a moped in college for all the same reasons that you're discussing. University of Maryland. Uh, as he was going down the street one day, minding his own business, the handlebars powdered company from the rest of the moped, oh. and so he ended up in the bushes. And happily, uh, wasn't injured too badly, but it got scratched up. So, you know, things happen. And, and when you get your motorcycle and you start to drive it, oh man, it's great. It's like being on drugs. It's fantastic. But, you know, it wears <laughs> off as soon as, as soon as the first, pardon the expression, jackass pulls out in front of you and you have to do an emergency maneuver to avoid that. Uh, it gets to be less fun. But to personalize it, you you live in a place called New York City, right? I do. And you live in an apartment building. I do. And it has many stories, right? Mm-hmm. From one to X, right? So yeah. Uh, let me ask a related question. Did you ever walk into a wall? Uh, I've done it once or twice. Yeah. How did it feel? Not great. Not great. Not good. And what do you think your speed was as you walked into the wall? Uh, probably five, six miles per hour. Oh, no, no, no. no. Two. <laughs> Two? Two miles an hour, my friend. If even that. So that's, that's not very much. And it didn't feel great, did it? So no. let me ask you, since you have experience in the apartment building, um, roughly how many stories high in that apartment building would you feel comfortable jumping out the window? Probably the second floor, max. Second floor. And if you hit the ground from the second floor, your speed would be? More than two. <laughs> 21 yeah. miles per hour. I'm sorry, how, much, how fast was that? 21 miles per hour. Yeah. 
Mm. Okay, I've been neglecting air resistance, but we'll just let it go over that. Excellent. So 21 miles an hour, are you always going to drive around New York and your way to the country at 21 miles per hour? Surely not. <laughs> probably not. <laughs> probably, probably going so Takes away faster, from the cool right? factor. So what do you think is a reasonable speed for you to be driving your motorcycle? Around 60 miles per hour outside of the city. I'm sorry, say again? Outside of the city, around 60 miles per hour, reasonably. 60 miles per hour. Well, let's see. Going down my list here, you would be somewhere around 15 stories high, jumping out a window to hit the ground at 60 miles per hour. Do you think mm. that would be a good idea? No. No, well, I can't well, say see, this I is, do. This kind of carries over to the whole motorcycle experience because once the bike goes down, that mm -hmm. ground gets awfully hard, awfully fast. There's a big mm -hmm. density difference between air and ground, <laughs> particularly if the ground has got things like steel studs in it to keep you from going off the side of the road. Mm. Most of the things that can happen after that incident are bad. <laughs> Trust me on that. <laughs> so, I, I, so I did another calculation. Let's say that you're, uh, you're driving up the New York Thruway and Mm. Speed limit is posted at 65 miles an hour, and you, being 17 years old and cool, decide to <laughs> go up to 76 miles per hour. Mm -hmm. Do you think that might ever happen? I'd wager so, yes. Yes, it's, it's certainly a possibility. Mm -hmm. So what is the equivalent jumping out of the window story height for your accident at uh, 76 miles per hour? And this, More by than the way, 15? you can do it at home. You can do this calculation at home using basic oh, physics. Okay, sure. Go let's, ahead. let's say 17 miles per hour. Or, I mean, sorry, 17 floors. 17. Close. 20 floors. Oh. Wow, that so really that's, you starts know, ramping up. Pretty cool. Anyway, so uh, when you walked into the door and had mm. that unpleasant sensation, you were going about two miles per hour. Mm. I'm going to guess that hitting the ground after jumping out of a 20th story window would be less pleasant. Do, do you agree? I'd I'd have to agree with you there. Yeah. <laughs> How much do you think your leather jacket will protect you in that circumstance? <laughs> Not much. Around numbers. Not much. Yeah, I think Not that's much. a pretty good pretty good estimate. <laughs> and another simple test you can do is to take a coconut and hit it with mm. a baseball bat. Um, just representative of what will happen to your head when you mm. jump out of that 20th floor. Mm. So that's all I can do with the physics here today, folks. It's over to you. <laughs> that Thank was you. great. <laughs> Thank you okay. very much. That's so sobering. Good. So maybe yeah. a, a two-seater, you could still be cool. Your girlfriend could sit next to you, mm -hmm. and it has There's airbags. Heat. Mm -hmm. There's a seat you've got. You can use it in the winter because there's Ooh. a roof and there's heat. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. You know what? What's a relatively inexpensive to um, a Miata? How's a Miata doing crash tests? They don't make them anymore, do they? I, I think they actually might. But I, I, you know, it's a very small vehicle and it's a convertible typically. So um, probably not great. Mm. Now, I don't know what type of women or other romantic partners you might be interested in, mm -hmm. but you can go a long way by telling people that you're a long-distance bicyclist and uh, <laughs> and that you have the uh, 
what do they call these things? Quads? Quads to prove it? Quads. <laughs> just just well, a helpful head, you know. Uh, I'm trying I'm trying to help you here. I'll, uh, there's I'll, always um, dirt track racing, too. I mean, did you, did, you does your phone know about that? Ooh, and then you don't have to worry it. about all these stop. other bad drivers. Right. And, and that usually yeah. happens out in the country. It's pretty oh. cool, too. <laughs> You're right. I should look into that. Thank you. No. No. But uh I'll say this this about uh <laughs> the the girlfriend point. I don't think my current one would be too thrilled with me getting uh a bike. She's like told me. She's a keeper. <laughs> so Marry her, marry her, yeah, marry her so. quickly. <laughs> She's brilliant. a good woman, marry her. Smart girl. Always liked her. Yeah. Well, you know. So if you'd like help with the, <laughs> with the physics, just give me a call and I'll send you the notes. Okay. I'd well, love that. All right. Well, uh, and I'll I'll have to break this to you all uh at this current moment. I've been pretty much convinced not to get one for a couple months now. I'm just uh I'm happy to be here though. <laughs> no, I, I prefer you torturing your father for months on end. That's that's a lot better. Like I'll definitely get a license and I'll be able to drive one and I'll drive one at some point, maybe passively like you know. Yeah, that's another thing I was yeah. going to recommend, and I'd recommend to everyone considering a motorcycle is to drive on the roads in a car for a few years and watch what occurs, and that might mm -hmm. help you in your decision. <laughs> yeah. You know, I've been told that private pilots have a peak in accidents at about 200 hours of experience, because that's when they think they understand how to fly the airplane, and that's when they don't know how to fly the airplane. Uh -huh. in all circumstances and things can go bad in a hurry and once things go bad in a hurry uh generally nothing good comes from it so, i like that that sounds very specifically directed <laughs> at me but i love the point i'm sure you're right <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for joining us today. I'm glad you're not getting a motorcycle. Yep. Your mother would be thrilled to find that out. I didn't say I'm not. Uh, what? Come on. Ever. I will. But I'm. I'm. I'm out. convinced it's a bad idea. Good. Uh, for now. So, so what are you saying? That you endorse bad ideas on certain circumstances? I'm saying I might get more reckless. I have in the past. <laughs> I'm going to kick him off of this call. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Good to be here. Thanks today. Bye bye. Bye. All right. <laughs> yeah. Well, listeners, if you want your children to be discouraged and or possibly encouraged to drive a motorcycle, just let us know. We'll have them on. Uh, and Michael will give potentially really bad advice. <laughs> you know, tell them to use <laughs> dirt bikes. Come on. Well, you know, they are they're not really within the scope of our work here, but they sure do look fun. Um I I I I, I rode one as a child on a couple of occasions and it was great. But, you know, I, I'm scared to death of driving on roads uh, after seeing some of the folks that are driving around us. Yeah. I, I agree. So speaking of also people who can't drive correctly, is it time for an uh, autopilot update or full self-driving update? Because I think the Tesla engineers think, hey, we've got 200 hours or 20,000 hours. These cars are okay. But we're seeing more and more that is not true. In fact, there was a uh, senior Tesla engineer, senior autopilot engineer, who said Tesla's famous 2016 autopilot demonstration 
where they have the driver in the car. Yeah, I don't know if you've, people have seen this, but and it says this person's just here just for legal reasons. And the car drives itself through San Francisco, does all these amazing, incredible things, and it parks itself. Uh, the entire video was staged. It was not representative of reality. And the car, when it was going to park itself, crashed into a fence. <laughs> Which is like, it, it's unbelievable. Uh, I hate it when that happens. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, but it's just so blatant that they're like, they fake this. I remember a long time ago, uh, working for Apple, they had this uh, operating system demonstration where it was like, ooh, it was very cool. Like, look at all the stuff that was happening. It was all faked. The whole thing was faked. That CEO was fired. Everything, you know, about it was replaced. But no one would die because of that software. Like, because of that demo, unfortunately. Tesla is just, hey, let's see how many people we can kill. Oh, it's just, it's another in a long line of, you know, actions that Tesla's taking through their marketing, through their advertising and interviews where they're promising a future that might exist one day and they're trying to suggest that their cars are the the solution there um but their cars simply are not part of that future right now i mean at least as far as driving themselves and safely allowing people who are operating to take their hands off the wheel um for any long time or you know there's a lot of distraction that that's at play here and you know it's we're we're continuing to see vehicles and if you know looking at some of the things that came out of the um consumer electronics show a couple of weeks ago you would think that they've already perfected this whole level two level three problem because they were suggesting even things like putting alternate realities on top of the actual reality uh in the windshields i I don't know why they would do that i guess drivers are so bored and we've gotten so safe that 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 we can you know see alternate realities in our windshield as we drive now um some of these things i i just find preposterous and it's it's just part of this whole industry trend that i think is exemplified by tesla of promising the future but not being able to deliver it and in the process endangering people well the the trends are headed in the right direction though because the last guy to start a major car company was i think john delorean and he simply went straight forward into drug trafficking so you know we've moved from drug trafficking to merely misrepresentation and maybe it's a that's a good trajectory right I mean, I don't. I, I guess that depends on what you think about Twitter. Well, <laughs> versus drug drug traffic. That's a good point. Hey, DeLorean, that was a cool looking car. It was think, cool. Yeah, yeah. and it I ran on lightning. <laughs> I don't think it had hair, airbags though. Um, but so the the New York Times did this whole article on their Sunday magazine coming up this weekend. Uh, the today's the seventeenth, right, of January, and. Uh, it talks about how the the reporter goes and meets with these essentially Tesla fans, people who've been in crashes with full self-driving on, but they blame themselves. A great line from the article was Musk's referring to Elon Musk's ideal customer was someone like Key, the person uh, in, in this article. who was willing to accept the blame when something went wrong, but possessing almost limitless faith in the next update. So this person's driving or having full self-driving take them somewhere. Full self-driving freaks out, crashes, and this person thinks, well, it's my fault. Like, I'm pretty sure this is how Scientology started. 
Yeah, it, it's an odd exercise in faith that that we see going on. A lot of folks, and we saw it. We talked about this a number of times. How you know, or about fifty percent of the folks who are driving these super tech vehicles of all manners think that they can drive themselves now, and that they don't have to pay as much attention as they might, which is simply not true. And it's it's hard to overstate the problem as we. You know, as, as we continue to put these cars out there, like we saw at CES, vehicles that are basically advertising video games and movies and all sorts of entertaining experiences in the car that even involve the driver. Um, and we think it's just way too early to even think about uh, letting drivers watch movies or interact with anything really other than the road. Um, and we don't think that's coming very quick certainly not as quickly as as they'd like to advertise that it is so that's something that i think all consumers need to take right now with a hefty dose of skepticism um because there are a lot of folks out there who who, who seem to think that tesla's driving themselves is only a matter of time and a matter of faith yeah what michael keeps referring to is ces is the consumer electronics show and this past one there was a, a number of uh, car companies um bmw uh, i think mercedes where they were and it wasn't just german car companies where they were like hey we have video games inside the car we'll project as you drive downtown your windshield screen will put like anime characters over your windshield screen to entertain you while you barrel this you know multi-ton vehicle super fast speeds down the highway uh, i i don't understand i mean i i kind of get why in the back seat you want to you know because you're a bad parent and you want to distract your children let them watch movies and stuff but they're having this in the front seat like for the driver which is right uh, and you know it's it makes you know you see who is behind someone i believe sony was behind one version right. of that and they're in the entertainment business. They're not going to make any money building cars. So where their value comes in is in advertising things like that and pretending that that's what's going to be going in cars soon. But I, 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 I just think that the, the cart is way out in front of the horse on some of these in-car experience things that are being advertised and this stuff about putting the metaverse in your car. Um, obviously, if your kids are in the back seat doing all this, it's one thing. But anything that impacts the driver, um, their attention or their ability to control the vehicle, uh, it's it's we're not there yet. We're not there with driver monitoring and we're not there with um all of the crash avoidance and ads features and we're certainly not there with cars that can drive themselves i can even see with with the screens in the back seats because sometimes you see it would be distracting to the driver in the car behind because you're watching their movie now while they're watching something and you're like wait what's what's on that screen i've seen it where someone was playing in their car system uh an adult film and I'm not trying to watch their movie, but all of a sudden you're like, wait, what's that? And your eyes are off the road because you're seeing something you don't expect to see. Um, and anyway. Yeah, I mean, I, I've never had that experience, but it sounds like somebody needs to to, to uh, be a little more private. I agree. Maybe I shouldn't have mentioned this. Was, <laughs> I don't have screens in the backseat of my Toyota. Well, I'm looking around now. I don't see anything like that. Just Michael. <laughs> 
so one of the last things on this this Tesla New York Times article I want to ask is people people seem to fall for this line that Tesla puts out there that their full self driving is safer than a human driver. They've been repeating this claim for a while, and they use some crazy math to get to this. It seems. What do either of you know the real story on this? Well, I mean, I would just classify it in the same BS file of everything that comes out of uh, Tesla regarding statistics. I mean, they've continued to trumpet that number that their Teslas are safer, but they haven't provided the the underlying data. I don't expect them to because I don't I don't think it exists. I don't think they can show right now that those vehicles are safer than humans. Um particularly for per 100 million miles traveled. We were just talking about that on motorcycles. And, you know, it's only 1.34 fatalities per 100 million miles traveled um, in vehicles. And, you know, we've seen a lot of uh, emergency responders killed and other people by Tesla. Some of those cases are already going to court. So I want to see a real comparison of, you know, how far these vehicles have gone on autopilot. And as we've discussed also on, on the podcast many times, you know, the car that they were driving during those first 10,000 to 20,000 to, you know, 100,000 or a million miles has been modified by software umpteen times since then. So you can't really make a comparison about the safety of something that is completely changed from start to finish because it's, it's, it's not the same product during each one of those miles. Well, according to the New York Times and an article published this weekend, the statistics that Tesla offers on the safety of their cars um, is better than the statistics overall for highway safety. So what are the caveats? Well, number one, you can't have a lot of statistical confidence in that number because they simply haven't driven enough miles to establish the kind of base that we have with cars overall. Number two, most of the miles that they drove were on protected highways. Protected highways are always much safer than any other kind of uh, transportation system. Civil, you know, uh, urban roads or suburban roads are much more dangerous than limited access highways where most of the Tesla miles are being driven. Uh, number three, many of the Tesla miles are being driven in California and other places that have very nice weather. Typically, <laughs> last couple of weeks, notwithstanding, but, you know, <laughs> typically the weather's a lot nicer. And the other point they bring out is that new cars in affluent neighborhoods always have very low accident rates. And all the Teslas are essentially new cars, and almost all of them are in affluent neighborhoods. So you would expect any vehicle in that environment to have a very low accident and collision rate. So even if the numbers that Tesla puts out there are accurate and faithful based upon what they've actually recorded in the vehicles. The numbers are just comparable and uh, similar to the numbers that have been demonstrated for other luxury vehicles in the same population, being driven by the same population that Tesla owners populate. Hmm. So the numbers are, you know, the numbers may be good, but they're insubstantial, and they have been tempered by long use of the cars, uh, older cars. They haven't been tempered by lousy roads or just you know really bad weather and bad environments. Okay. Those numbers will come, but they're they're not available yet. 
And and I think we've heard it first. Fred argues that rich people are better drivers. I think that's the takeaway from that. Well, uh, rich people tend to live in places that have better roads and they tend to have newer cars. So they may not be inherently better drivers than anybody else, but the net safety level of those people because of the privileged position in society, uh, both vertically and laterally, if you will, uh, does make it, it gives them a higher life expectancy. And I think we all know that. It's, it's why people often prefer to be wealthy rather than not wealthy. I need a new job. Yeah, I wish I had known all that before I went into nonprofits. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, well, present company accepted, but, you know, okay, good. it motivates a lot of people. Right. Uh, so this uh, past week, the NTSB, the National Traffic Safety Board, the head of it came out and talked about the safety risks that heavy electric vehicles pose if they collide with lighter vehicles. Um, she basically took a physics 101 class and went, holy cow. And then someone showed her a picture of an EV Hummer, which weighs three billion pounds, and saw that she was driving a tiny little uh, Prius and thought, I will not survive this. And that was Jennifer Hermendi, who is the chair of the NTSB at the, uh, there was a TRB conference recently, Transportation Research Board. Um, that she was speaking at. And, you know, that's something that if you've been listening to our podcast that I think we've been pointing out since the first episode is that while electric vehicles may have future benefits, we're still really concerned about the weights that are involved and particularly in vehicles like the one uh, that uh, she cited, which was the Hummer EV, which to us seems like a completely impractical show truck that has no real value other than as an added safety risk on our roads. Hey, it's 9,000 pounds. that goes zero to 60 in like under four seconds. That's pretty cool. Again, cool. <laughs> it is pretty cool. Yeah. And uh, it's going to save the planet too, because it's electric. Yeah. That's so how even better. Way to so I, And I think that, you know, that what, what they're looking at and what, what, we're, we're trying to point out here is that, you know, there are we've seen the SUVs get bigger and bigger. We've seen people driving bigger and bigger cars over the year and over the years. And that's a problem. The weight, the added weights are a problem. But in this case, you're adding a pretty large percentage of percentage of weight to the vehicle. You're talking about the battery in the EV Hummer is weighs more than a Honda Civic. I think it's about 2,600 pounds. So you're not just steadily and slowly increasing the sizes and weights, which arguably you could account for in crash worthiness protections as the years goes by here. In this case, you're simply adding a big chunk of weight onto each vehicle. And I certainly don't think that the, um, the distribution of that weight and where they're placing on the vehicles and also the crash worthiness needed in other vehicles to prevent them from being crushed by giant vehicles. None of that's taking place in a slow manner in this case, like it might have when SUVs came into, came into the world a few years back. Um, in this case, there's just a lot of weight being added almost instantly to these platforms. That added weight has lots of consequences, not only just in accidents, but also in infrastructure. Um, for example, the parking garages are built around the idea that there's an average weight of the vehicle that's going to be in the parking garage. And then you have a factor of safety that you apply to that average weight. And that tells you how much concrete you've got to put into the 
piers that are being used to construct the parking garage. If everything gets heavier, you're eating into that margin of safety. Those will wear out faster, and there are costs associated with that. The highways will wear out faster, and there are costs associated with that. But the EVs typically do not pay a fair amount of tax compared to what everybody else is paying because they're getting their power from the elect from the electric grid. There's not, in many states, a specific fee associated with electric vehicles. Some states have that. But the fee tends to be insubstantial compared to the average uh, added wear and tear on the highways associated with these extra vehicle weights. So, yeah, everybody else, you know, has to pay for the privilege of the EV owners driving these relatively inexpensive to fuel vehicles. I think that's got to change. People have got to pay their fair share of the upkeep, maintenance and construction of the infrastructure that they use every day. Particularly if they're getting subsidized for the purchase of the vehicle through oh, a yeah. tax rebate. Right. Oh, I think it would just make more sense to charge not uh, based off of vehicle weight in general, because, you know, a regular gas powered Hummer weighs a hell of a lot, too, compared to my. Yeah, it would make uh, sense to charge based on weight and disincentivize people that want to buy giant cars. Right. But, you know, again, I'm naive. This is America. <laughs> Why are you guys? Yeah, I mean, in, in, in the guys- end, you know, the manufacturers have a choice here. They can either not sell people what they want and make, you know, a safer ecosystem for cars to travel in or just do what they've been doing for the entire history of the industry, which is sell people what they want without a general regard for safety. Well, speaking of safety, I think it's time for the Dow of Fred. You've now entered the Dow of Fred. Oh, thank you. My favorite part. You're welcome. This week, we're going to flash back to, I think, something that was brought up on the first, very first episode, if I have if I have it correct, is uh, we're going to talk about airbag inflator chemistry, mechanisms and departure from industrial mil- military design standards, um, because somebody asked about that. And I have a cat begging. There's a, there's a lot to it. Thank you. Thank you, Anthony. Yeah. And one of the things that's hard to do is to wrap your wrap your grasp around something that is inherently so technically complicated and uh, you know turn it into a bite-sized chunk that people will <laughs> be willing to listen to there are very few places people go to listen to a lecture about chemistry and i'm, I'm glad this is one of them but let's talk about the airbag inflators they are little devices that generate a lot of gas very quickly and uh, use that to inflate the airbags and act as a cushion when you're in uh, in a collision. The airbags are uh, filled with stuff called propellant, technically. It's not exactly an explosive. It burns at just the right speed for just long enough to generate gas, smoke, if you will, um, and other combustion products. That will fill up the airbag at just the right rate so that you will bounce off of it and and you know survive the crash so one of the differences between these devices and similar devices that are used in military and commercial environments is that the latter go through a qualification process the objective of a qualification process is to make sure that the device, the electro-explosive device, which is what an airbag inflator is, will be both safe and effective 
at the end of its service life, not at the beginning of a service life, at the end. So a typical service life for these things could be 30 years. In order to do that, the bags go through a very complicated series of tests that include exposure to environments, um, accelerated exposure to environments, for example, salt spray that inundates it for days at a time, vibrations that are much higher than the vibrations you would expect to have, hot and cold cycles that exceed what you would expect to have normally, because you're trying to accelerate you're trying to accelerate whatever damage you've got or whatever damage would occur in the limited time available to do the qualification. Now, there are a lot of materials that can possibly be used in airbags. Uh, a list I've got here is, I'll just run through it quickly, just to give you an idea of the complexity of the, of the industry. Sodium azide, strontium nitrate, potassium chlorate, potassium nitrate, guanidine nitrate, potassium perchlorate, ammonium perchlorate, Copper nitrate, copper oxide, guanidine. Well, I'm not an expert. Aren't oh, half sorry? of these things? I'm not an expert, but half of these things sound like aren't, aren't they? Don't they? Most of these things cause cancer. Uh, like strontium. Many of the, most, I'm not sure, but many of them are hazardous chemicals, and right. you can find. I think you can find a lot of them on the back of your Nature Valley snack bar uh, <laughs> list of ingredients as well. Okay. But uh, you know. How the how fast they burn depends upon what their chemical nature is and how they're packaged. So talk about phase stabilized ammonium nitrate, um, which is down at the bottom of the list. Those are actually formed into little pellets like like aspirin tablets, and they're packed really hard into those tablets because ammonium nitrate, when it burns, burns on the surface of whatever the uh, the particle is, right? So if it burns on the surface, it has to burn down through the surface at a certain rate, and that gives you the nice flow that goes out into the airbag at just the right rate so that it inflates it but doesn't rupture and cause a catastrophic problem inside your car. Now, the problem that, that they were running into with the Takata airbags and the phase-stabilized ammonium nitrate inflators is that they were never qualified. They never went through the qualification test to make sure that they would be safe and effective at the end of their life. And what happened is these little aspirin-like aspirin pills inside of them cracked over time. And what happens when they cracked is they increase the surface area, right? Because you got the crack and now you've got twice the surface area you had before because there are cracks running through it. So since it's burning on the surface, and since it's burning on all surfaces, it burns a lot faster when it's cracked or in a powder form than it does when it's packed densely into a pill form. This is what caused the rupture of the airbags. It wasn't a blockage per se. It was just that they were burning much faster than the gas could be taken off and sent into the airbag. So they ruptured and, and that caused the explosion of the uh, of the vehicle, the ruptured and the shrapnel that has been killing people. Again, it's not explosive material per se, because explosive material burns there incredibly rapidly, much faster than these materials. So the the hazard is caused by the buildup of pressure inside the casing. It's not the it's not inherent in the materials itself. I'm only going into this to say that there's an awful lot involved in these processes. And most of the processes that we discuss, uh, we, we toss them off in a few minutes, but 
there's an awful lot of engineering and qualification that goes into these. If anybody would like to uh, see for themselves how complex it can get, I invite you to look at Mill Standard 1751-A, Mill Standard 1751-A, which talks about the safety performance test qualification for electric explosive devices and energetic materials in general. Um, not that I expect you to do that, but again, there's a lot to it. And at some level, you can admire the processes and the engineers and the chemists who go through this process to make sure that these can be done. At another level, you might wonder why NHTSA doesn't require similar qualification process for these millions of airbag inflators that are currently in cars um, across the country. When nobody knows what their end-of-life performance is going to be. Nobody knows when they fall off the cliff and should be replaced. So uh, I think we're in a new world than we were 20 years ago. And if, if we really need to do a much better job qualifying the components before they go into vehicles, which are expected to last a long time, have a lot of capabilities uh, and a lot of potential for damage to the occupants of the vehicle if they're used beyond their useful service life. Uh, nobody knows what that is now. And I th we think that that's a defect in the regulations that should be addressed. So yeah, what you're talking about, the, the end of the end of useful life, um, you know, if they're the baseline they're saying is 30 years, obviously we see cars on the road that are much older than 30 years old. Um, right. And we know there's a problem with, with Takata at, you know, the 10 year mark or something like that. They start decaying. Is this a hidden time bomb with other manufacturers when they hit the 40 year mark, the 50 year mark or no one knows? Well, is it a hidden time bomb? I don't know. Nobody knows. Um, it would, I think, be wise for somebody to do a survey and find out how these other airbag inflators are doing. I think it would also be wise for people to have established the useful service life of these components within the vehicles and alert owners at the time or somehow alert the public when any one of these it gets beyond its service life. You know, airplanes are retired at, at about 20 years. They're perfectly fine. They still fly. They fly them into some place where they leave them in the, uh, you know, in the boneyard. Right. Or they fly them to South America and sell them off to people who are less careful about safety. But there's a lot of body of analysis behind those airplanes that says after 20 years, you have dropped below the acceptable level of safety for the qualification of the aircraft. So you, you've got to do something to it, either rebuild it, inspect it, or get rid of it. Mm-hmm. There's nothing comparable for, for cars, and I, I, I'm puzzled by that. There should be. There should be some comparable standard that forces people to say, here's the useful service life. Here's when you need to really do something serious. If you don't, really bad things can happen to you. Hmm. Yeah, I wonder if on, on these early airbags, you know, or ones from the 90s even, I wonder if even just the, the vinyl wraps around them, if they wear out before the airbag inflators do. So I'm, I'm thinking of a, of a, the car I learned to drive on was this Honda Accord and the, just the covering of that was, you know, it was vinyl and, and that stuff will just decay over time. Um, well, it does. We talked about that, yeah. uh, I think a couple of weeks ago where we talked about the phthalates leaching out of the fabric, right. leaching out of the vinyl. Um, over time, vinyl loose changes its characteristics. You know, if you leave something out in the backyard after a year, you come back to it, it's not as usable as it was before. 
So I, I think that's a great point you bring up, and I think that that's something important. The whole system there, there's needs to be addressed, and the safety of that whole system needs to be addressed, particularly as the vehicles get older. But even when they're new, the standards for qualifying them and for um, addressing the adequate safety are, are very loosely defined. And there's a lot of latitude for manufacturers to do pretty much, you know, pretty much whatever they want in that arena. Hmm. So two takeaways. Regulation is probably a good idea. And I had a good point. Okay. There we go. Congratulations. Hey, <laughs> no. It only took 29 episodes. No, we like that. Though. <laughs> you know, it's true that even a blind squirrel will find a nut every now and again. But not, not to say you're a nut, but. Ah, but a blind squirrel. All right. <laughs> That's good. Um, should we move on to listener mail? Is that the, the point? In the Absolutely. Show? We love our listeners. Okay. We've got, we've got good listener mail in. Um, let's take a look. Oh, my. Computers hiding my my listener mail. So, um, well, first of all, here's a short one from our super fan Jane Perkins. Thank you for helping me discover my inner nerd. I love this podcast. Well, we love you. You do great work. Uh, and then the next one we have from Melody Berg, uh, who asks why the lack of details for all of these great topics. Um, well, I mean, we only have an hour. Uh, maybe we could get more into involved with certain things, but. Anyway, uh, Kia Hyundai fires. I don't see the engine specified other than the really bad ones, the four cylinders. What about the six-cylinder en- engines? Do they catch on fire? Um, are Takata airbags still being put in new cars, such as a 2023 Toyota 4Runner and Highlander? Um, you mentioned 34, com- cork, uh, 34 car companies that still have recalls on Takata airbags. Which companies don't have any Takata airbags? Uh, so that's how... That's a lot of things we have there. So let's just break it down to the first right. one, which was um, Kia Hyundai fires. Um, is it just the, the four cylinders or does it also the six cylinder engines that have been catching on fire? There are a lot of different um, fire recalls on the Kia and Hyundai's in the past decade. The, the main um, recall that we were involved in with our uh, defect petition involved the uh Four cylinders that were um, the GDI engine is what they call it. Um, that the six cylinders, when we didn't see the same number of complaints about fires, I think that was backed up by the Insurance Institute study that looked at peer vehicles and found that um, the Kia Hyundai vehicles and the six cylinder models had lower rates, even in the peer vehicles that were included in the study. So it didn't appear at the time that those vehicles were having the same, um, engine problems and potential fire problems that the four cylinder vehicles were. Now there are a number of, um, fire recalls that have been released by Hyundai and Kia in the last couple of years, three years or so. Uh, since NHTSA started the investigation on, you know, electrical system issues and other things that don't have anything to do with engines. So I encourage someone, you know, certainly check the recalls on their vehicle, see if any of those other recalls um, apply. But um, for the engine failure issue that, that resulted in fires, those were mostly and only limited to the four-cylinder um, GDI engines. Okay. 
Are Takata airbags still being put in new cars? Does Takata no. still exist? I, yeah. No, they don't exist. Yeah. Um, they were turned into a group, I believe, called Key Safety Systems. Um, but no, there are no more Takata bags going into cars that pose the risk that that was around from about 2002 through 2017 models. So anything built after 2000. 17 maybe some 2018s involved but you can you can be fairly certain anything built 2018 or later model year is not going to have the takata problem okay so uh then she's the question what about this new start stop technology it sounds like another disaster in the making um i'm not exactly sure what that's referring to you know i i, I don't we haven't received a lot of safety related complaints on the start stop i mean i know a lot of people are annoyed by them you know the only reason they're in cars is because it's a way for manufacturers to comply with the fuel economy standards kind but, of like but, but what what is what is she referring to what is start stop i don't i think it's the start when you when you get to a um stoplight and you stop and your engine cuts off Oh, and I hear that, that all the time, and I'm, I'm there thinking, you go. nuts. That's what that is. Yeah. So and so weird. I could see scenarios where it, you know, could be dangerous. Not if it's not working properly. For instance, if you're on, you know, a, a say a 55 mile per hour highway that has stoplights and the um, stop start doesn't work, the start half of it doesn't take place, and you're stuck in the middle of the road with possibly people coming up behind you at speed. Um, those kind of scenarios where it's puts you in a situation similar to a stall. Um, I'm sure there's been a recall or two out there for something like that. That's that would be I would expect that. But um, overall, I don't think we've seen, um, you know, large negative safety impacts from the start step technology other than the annoyance at finding out your car has that and no spare tire so that the <laughs> manufacturers can comply with fuel economy regs. Wait, is that the the whole point of a start stop is for fuel fuel economy? Yeah, it reduces it reduces how you know how much gasoline you're burning. But doesn't oh, it reduces it reduces yeah. pollution too. Right. Particularly yeah. in urban neighborhoods. It, and the, the lack of the tire reduces the weight of your vehicle, which reduces how much gas you're burning. So sure. that's But doesn't the start stop? I thought that would increase pollution because when you first start in an ice engine, doesn't it burn off more toxic chemicals versus having it idle for the length of a red light when you start it from cold yes it will okay but if the engine's warm it just it pops right in and pretty much assumes whatever efficiency it had before you stopped if you stop through you know 20 minutes or half hour sure the, the uh components in the engine are going to start to shrink again but i don't think that's an issue with the start stop at you know continuous use Okay. Well, that's good to know because I thought that a lot of people in my neighborhood were just nutso and um, kept turning their cars on and off at, at traffic lights. Um, well, you don't, you don't have that on your, your car. No, it doesn't have that at all. No, it gets um, really good gas mileage. It's like, you know, on average. Every, I, I don't know if every manufacturer put it in or not. I know that I've got it in, on the Volkswagen. Mm. Well, I've got it in my Subaru as well, but it's, it seems a little bit ridiculous. I mean, after three weeks of driving, it gives me an announcement that I've saved 0.1 gallons of gas. It just and it turned the, the I, I I don't I, I mean I, my annoyance is in the summer it turns off the air conditioning when the car shuts off at stoplights. So I'm hot nature. That's no fun. <laughs> okay, I got the last uh, listener mail. I'm gonna try and do my best to 
to get to it, but it was uh, someone was um, had an operator's course involving a prototype EV, EV semi semi. Right. Um, he said the number one instruction that was given during this is the single most important thing needed to be talked about, which is if involved in an accident, the driver must shut off the master power switch to prevent the first responders from being electrocuted and possibly killed. This is an issue we've talked about in the past. So operating on a 480 480 circuit enables this possibility. Do autos have the same potential problem? Do first responders know anything about this potential problem? Is it safe for witnesses to an accident to help a victim without becoming a victim themselves? Um, these are all great questions. Right. Yeah, those are good questions. And they're, um, you know, this is an area where somehow, some way, NHTSA laid out safety groundwork years ago um, on passenger vehicles. It, it, they, they, FMDSS, Federal Motor Vehicle Safety Standard 305, um, was put into play back in the 90s when, when NHTSA started working on it. I believe it was finally uh, promulgated around 2001. And what it, it's intended basically to ensure that the um, batteries are safe to approach for emergency responders and even, you know, almost as importantly, safe for the person that might still be trapped in the car or bystanders or anyone in the area. Um, and what it's intended to do is isolate high voltage risks in the event of the crash. And also it has some, um, it's also in, in intended to ensure that the battery integrity um, is strong so that the battery isn't spilling electrolytes or other material, unsafe materials out that could, you know, harm people or, or whatever in the, in the event of a crash. So <laughs> that's a problem. Um, and it's in that case, you know, that the, the standard has been into in effect for, 20 years it's almost like they knew all these evs were coming mm. um we wish they would be that uh, have that more fo have that much foresight on a lot of the other areas that we work with them on um what the reader was writing it about was a, a uh, semi tractor truck that those um are over ten thousand pounds obviously and the NHTSA standards don't apply to them and so there on those trucks is a manual cutoff switch to turn off the um battery before or, or after an event or before emergency services um arrive that's not an ideal solution to us because you know obviously the uh, operator of the semi could be injured in a crash and um First responders, as we know, many of them, they're well-trained, but they have a lot of jobs they have to take care of and a lot of different kind of cars and trucks that they have to deal with. And so, you know, figuring out where a manual switch is on every make and model of truck or car out there is a difficult thing. And we don't know that manufacturers and the government have really put it, invested enough time and money into systems that can train emergency responders on, you know, where these things are and how to avoid dangers. So that's that part of the question remains somewhat unresolved, although we don't believe it is um, it, it, it's not, you know, NHTSA has already put out this regulation to help protect folks in passenger cars. And they're going to be updating that regulation soon, um, as well as they integrate some of the battery management um, system work that the U.N. is doing into uh, federal regulations on EV batteries. I also want to point out that circling back to last week. The Underwriters Laboratory UL 4600 standard that we discussed last week 
includes many safety case considerations associated with the integrity of the vehicle after a crash, including isolation of the electrical systems. A UL4600 has recently been extended to include heavy trucks. It was originally just associated with um, light vehicles. So we can hope that the manufacturers of those, of those light trucks are using that standard and adopting some of the safety case uh, practices in that standard to address exactly this issue along with the whole host of other safety issues. I'm going to uh, tackle the last part of their question was, is it safe for witnesses to an accident to help a victim without becoming a victim? Uh, I've taken a wilderness first aid course, so I, I know the answer to this one. If you're in an urban area or emergency services are relatively nearby, don't. Do not try to help. Do not get involved like that because especially with an EV, whatnot, the, ideally the emergency services will have training. They don't need another victim on their hand. Um, right. Well, and that goes, for, you know, I, I suppose that would go for most situations. But if someone desperately has to exit a vehicle due to fire or something else, that's a tough decision to make. And, um, you know, it's hard for the average consumer looking at a vehicle to determine whether or not it's an electric vehicle or not. I mean, you might not even be aware. It's not like they have a big flag warning you that there's a battery there. Um, but, you know, it's certainly something to consider um now the NHTSA standard is supposed to ensure that there are no um risks to bystanders or to emergency personnel i don't you know we don't live in a perfect world i'm sure there are um sometimes where that standard doesn't quite get the job done especially because it's about 20 years over 20 years old but um you know they are going to upgrade it and hopefully uh, some of the lessons we've learned from evs in the last few years will be implemented into it so let's move to solid state batteries or some other non-combustible technology as soon as possible. Well, the combustion is one part of it, but the other part is just getting yourself into a circuit between the high voltage and the ground on the vehicle. So those are mostly encased in the vehicle and uh, you can't say that it cannot happen that you get electrocuted, but what would have to happen to somebody outside of the vehicle is that the ground line from the electric vehicle would have to attach pretty pretty well to the earth itself and form a conductive path. And then also the person on the outside of the vehicle would have to touch an energized part of the vehicle. So it, it would be extraordinarily difficult for all that to happen. Not impossible, but it, it would be difficult to happen. So I. I guess on balance, I'd say if the car's on fire and you can break a window and get somebody out, go ahead and do it. Right. But, uh, you know, if it's if there's not an imminent threat to human life in there somewhere, um, definitely leave this to the professionals. Yes. Agreed. Um, And I I think on that note, um, I I think everybody's learned a, a bunch of very valuable lessons today. (laughs) <laughs> only get involved there's a danger to human life i made a good point motorcycles are horrible horrible things for teenagers living under my roof well we also learned that your son has good judgment so that was that was a good outcome for today <laughs> that yeah that's true but you know cool you know he's got the leather jacket you know uh i'll let it give, give him a break he's 17 Anthony. yeah i know cool, i know <laughs> he gets points for honesty i gotta i gotta say that too <laughs> without a doubt 
Hey, with that, thank you, listeners. Um, I hope you've enjoyed the time as much as we have. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. For more information, visit www.autosafety.org.